From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. In our last episode, we talked about racial diversity in our workforce, from the front lines to the boardroom. But honest moment, those new policies and new changes are going to take time. So if we really want to address racism within our organizations, we have to find a way to address the bias that we inherently have. That's the conversation I want to have today. To do that, I've brought back two familiar voices to Radio Advisory. Michelle Simmons, the head of workforce research, and Matt Corner, a managing director in our talent development solutions business. Hey, Matt. Hey, Michelle. Welcome back to Radio Advisory. Hey, Ray. Hey. <laughs> two times in a row for you, Michelle. Matt, this is also your second time on the podcast, so you are Indeed. veterans at this point. I think we should just be regular guests. You bet. Yeah, that, that's your way of advocating yes. for one of the fancy mics that I have, right? I, I think we're all entitled to one of those fancy mics. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and, and dive in. You're both having conversations about coming to terms with bias, something that leaders are really, really focused on right now. And I have to imagine that talking about bias has to involve at least some convincing on why this is an important topic, right? We covered a little bit of this, Michelle, in our last episode, but I want to hear from both of you again. How are you convincing executives that this is a challenge that they have and that it is one worth addressing? Matt, let's start with you. Well, let's start with what healthcare organizations themselves have committed to. You won't find a healthcare organization that hasn't committed either directly through its stated mission or through its articulated values, a commitment to ensuring that every person, regardless of who they are, receives the best possible care. Mm -hmm. So this is not new. It's simply a glaring reminder of the ways in which we're falling short. So, you know, it's important because healthcare leaders have said it's important. The only thing that's different now is that we can see much more clearly just how we're falling short. Hmm. Michelle, what do you think? Yeah, I would just take it from the workforce angle and add that it's really important that people show up to work and feel like they can bring their best. They feel, you know, safe and heard and valued. And a lot of times we may say those things, but I don't know that people actually show up feeling that way. And it does seem that it's even more urgent that staff do feel what we might call that sense of inclusivity in their organization, particularly right now when we're asking so much of people in the work is really challenging, really stressful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about the role of bias in leadership positions Before we really get too far, I want to get out ahead of some pushback that folks might be having. Matt, Mm. you are a leader at Advisory Board, and you are also a white man. Mm -hmm. Why should you be part of having this discussion? This is a conversation that I have with some frequency lately. I think for far too long, this challenge has been framed up as a challenge for people of color that it doesn't really involve white people. When in fact, if we have any hope of dismantling 
systemic racism. We have to understand what is the purpose of that system. And it is not to confer disadvantage on people of color explicitly, but rather to confer unearned advantage and privilege on white people. Hmm. So in order to have any hope of dismantling that system, I think we have to look at it in its totality. Yeah. You know, Michelet and I, we talk about this with some frequency. And if part of the job that we face both as leaders and those who engage leaders is challenging white privilege, as someone who is perhaps the poster child for white privilege, I, I may be <laughs> in a better position to do that. And I think that's going to be a very, very important part of our work is for white people to both illuminate and hopefully eliminate yeah. privilege and the disadvantage it confers on others. Mm-hmm. There is literally nothing that I want more than to see more white men having this conversation and being willing to be vulnerable and to challenge their peers. And I think Matt spoke to that. There's only so much that I can do or that I feel that I can do as a black woman in this conversation, because a lot of this is about bringing white people into this. And I don't have that perspective. And so I really value being able to partner with Matt on this work and definitely taking some of the pressure off of me because I, you all know, I do some of this work internally for advisory board. And that doesn't mean that I want to be the only person speaking on this. We don't change culture that way. Yes. Mm. And Michelle, the very first time you came on Radio Advisory, you said something that stuck with me and I feel like I want to repeat now, which is that if the answer to systemic racism, to bias, Mm. was solely at the hands of Black people, it would have been solved already. Far too much time has gone by for white people to get involved. But this is a very triggering subject, right? Nobody wants to think of themselves as racist. No one wants to think of themselves as bias, but I have a feeling that you both are about to tell me that that is exactly how we should be approaching our own behavior. Mm-hmm. Is that right? What we're talking about is systemic racism. We're talking about the world into which we are all socialized. Mm-hmm. It means something to be born black in America. It also means something to be born white in America. And we are raised to believe certain things, often unconsciously and implicitly. And we can no sooner deny that than deny being wet when you're sitting in the middle of the ocean. Hmm. We are awash in a racist society, and therefore we have to be able to consciously engage the unconscious bias and sometimes conscious bias that we all bring to bear. If we are able to take that which is implicit and unconscious and make it explicit and conscious, we have some hope of being able to dismantle it. And I hope that people have gotten there, right? I hope that in the last few months, people realize that bias is something that is inherent to being a human being today. If you haven't, I will say there's one line that I actually got from another podcast that has been sticking with me. And it's this idea that no one would ever define themselves as a liar. Mm -hmm. No one ever would ever say, I am a liar. But everybody lies. Mm -hmm. Right. That is a ubiquitous part of being the human experience. And that helps me explain racism and bias to other people and help them kind of understand that this is actually a universal experience Mm -hmm. and one that we have to really proactively challenge. Right. And for me, I have to do the work in other ways as well, because as a black woman, I certainly have internalized oppression, internalized racism and find myself in situations where I might be policing myself because I'm trying to live up to a certain standard that is 
a white one mm-hmm. of what it means to be professional, mm-hmm. of what it might mean to be a leader. Or I know, Ray, I'm sure you think a lot about what does it mean for me to be a woman leader in this organization? Mm-hmm. And sometimes you do have to challenge stereotypes or you just have to challenge those norms. And so I think we are all called and in need of doing that reflection on all of the dimensions of identity. I know we're talking about, you know, race today, but this shows up in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is triggering. And that trigger, I think, is born from fear. Mm -hmm. Leaders are afraid that they are going to say something that is maybe ignorant at best and outright racist at worst. So what do you two say to those leaders? Well, buckle up, you're going to get uncomfortable and you're going to get it wrong. And understanding that, invest in building a really clear understanding of your and your organization's commitment to getting this right. Prospectively declare that you will be trying very, very hard to get it as right as you can, but understand that you're likely to get it wrong and hopefully lead by example. People are going to have to get uncomfortable. They're going to have to get vulnerable. They're going to have to be mistaken and collectively together get it more and more right every day. But there is no path forward that doesn't involve coming to terms with all of the ways in which we are not showing up as as we would like. Uh And maybe I'll ask this to you, Michelle. How do you actually make somebody more comfortable with the idea that they are going to get it wrong? How do you make someone more comfortable with that? (laughs) I don't know that you ever become comfortable with that, but I think that if you set the expectation with your team, with the people around you, whoever you're interacting with, I am in a process of learning and unlearning Hmm. things. And I really want you to tell me when I get it wrong. And perhaps doing a little bit of work of acknowledging when you might be saying something and, and you know something doesn't feel right about this. And I'm, I'm going to actually name that to get feedback because a lot of times I think it is really hard, especially if you are the only one, whatever the only one is in a room to call something out. So as a leader, you do have to, to figure out how am I actually going to show people that I am willing to be wrong? Yeah. And to not get defensive, I feel like we we have to practice this and people probably do practice this a lot with their family. So it's just a a different way of doing this. Like if you, if you have a partner or whatever, you get stuff wrong and you have to accept that and not be defensive about it and say, I'm, that was not my intention. I am so sorry. Please help me understand how I can do better or where this went left. And I do think there are some overt ways that you can set those expectations Advisory board is not perfect, but one thing that I really like that we've done is we start a lot of our meetings with goals and anti-goals. And when it came to the conversation internally about racism, Michelle, you told everyone comfort is actually an anti-goal. And that really struck me as I am coming into this meeting wrong. I am not operating with the goal in mind if I am comfortable that's right on. We do have to sort of declare comfort an anti-goal. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, the goal isn't comfort. Our purpose is to illuminate and eliminate systemic racism, unconscious bias, and the things that keep us from realizing our stated mission and values. I think leaders can 
gain a lot of space and create a lot of space by going back to that mission again and again and again and again. What are we trying to accomplish here? What is our purpose? In the course of that, we've got a lot of learning and unlearning to do. It's going to get messy. It's going to get uncomfortable. All of us, myself included, are likely to get it wrong at some point. In the world of human development, there is no growth without pain, Hmm. right? We learn, and if people reflect upon the watershed moments in their lives when they have changed in a way that has resulted in growth, they're usually really bad moments, failures. So rather than pretend that they're not happening or that they won't happen, we need to consciously engage those moments for what they can teach us and for how we can approach our ideals. Yeah. Matt, actually, that just brought up a point for me. I did want to know what your impression of this is. So we do talk a lot about speaking from your own experience. Mm -hmm. Speaking from your own experience, I think sometimes thinking about adding in where you are coming from into a conversation can help. So as a Black woman from a single family home, whatever those things are that give some context about what has informed my perspective as I am coming into a conversation. And I think that sometimes the dominant identity in a room you don't do that. And so you're not actually sharing. Here are the things that are informing my perspective. Because I think there's like an understated assumption that that's everyone's perspective or experience. That is so right on. It's only been in recent years that I've reflected actively on what does it mean to be white? And it's a question that frankly is not natural to look at or easy to look at because we are socialized to believe it doesn't mean anything to be white, Mm. (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Because if we really started to see and look at what it means to be white, we'd notice that, again, we benefit from a lot of advantages, like the fact that as a middle-aged white guy, I am more likely to command a room, Mm. to have my ideas heard, to have others hear my voice than people who don't look like me. Mm -hmm. A big part of this is for white people to recognize that they have an experience too, and that that experience has bearing on other people. Mm -hmm. So I have to add, because as we're talking about being uncomfortable in conversations about identity or about race specifically, I just get emotional thinking about this because I have never been in a situation like outside of town with my family where I feel comfortable. My whole Hmm. life has been in predominantly white spaces from elementary school to now, you know, working at advisory board. And I literally feel like I I live my life with this baseline level of anxiety because of how I have to navigate. Well, how should I show up here? And am I being to this or to that? It's overwhelming. Hmm. It is overwhelming at times. And so when people tell me like, this is too uncomfortable, or I don't know how to deal with this. Like, just think about people. There's a lot of people out there who literally live this every moment of their lives. And we just want others to engage in this, lean into it a bit more than they may have had to. I think that's so important, Michelle, and I want to circle that and underline it and say if you're uncomfortable for five minutes or for an hour, that is nothing in comparison to what other people are feeling. And maybe just to put an environment point on it, we should say, get over it. Yeah. Well, and if you are having a difficult time understanding what privilege is, 
if it's unusual for you to feel uncomfortable, that's privilege. That's privilege. Yes. Right. Yes. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. Looking for more ways to connect with Ray and our other experts? To stay up to date on the biggest news and issues in healthcare today, follow Advisory Board on social media. There, you'll find resources for your team, our experts' latest blog posts, and information about upcoming special events. On Twitter, we're at AdvisoryBD. And we're on Facebook and LinkedIn, too. Just search for Advisory Board. I was part of a conversation the other day with a friend of mine who is a white woman and is absolutely terrified of getting it wrong. And we had this conversation about what is it that makes it so hard to be gotten right, mm-hmm. right? So there's a white person who has good intent. You want for others not to get you wrong. But you know we're also starting from a deficit here because yeah. <laughs> so often we have stepped in it in ways that I think rightly, well-earned, make people of color suspicious of when a white person opens their mouth. And the two words that come to mind are performative and perfunctory. Let's say we're in a meeting and Michelet says something like, I really want for more white people to speak up. And then I speak up. There's going to be some people who might say, look at him. He's speaking up so that he can appear to be woke, right? (laughs) Yeah. At the same time, a lot of times when someone like me does something or says something, it's, okay, have I said enough yet? Can the box be checked? Are we done with this yet? Okay. So performative or perfunctory. And so if we start with that context that others may naturally see whatever it is we say or do in those ways, then we've got to work extra hard to come across as we hope. I'm much more interested in white people speaking up to talk about what actions that they're taking or to challenge their peers rather than yeah. trying to get credit for what they know, information that they know that they're not doing anything with. And, and then there's also just the context, knowing where you are and when is it my turn to speak up and when is it my turn to step back and listen to others. So we've been talking about this idea that white people have privilege and that leaders in healthcare, as they tend to be male and they tend to be white, have that privilege. How does somebody actually challenge that day to day as a leader in healthcare? I think it has to start with an acceptance that that is true, right? I don't think we can start with that premise because to accept that that is true for some people, what will that mean? It will mean I'm racist and I don't want to believe that I'm racist. Creating that larger frame of we all carry bias because we're all socialized into it. That is, I think, important. From there, recognizing that we come by it honestly, but really starting to understand how does my privilege confer disadvantage on others or inhibit the space where others might be able to step in. That's where it starts is recognizing that it's possible and that it's true. Michelle, what do you think? How does somebody challenge their privilege? Maybe in a non-performatory way. There are a lot of situations that we find ourselves in, like small things that actually can become a big deal, like the way that we lead our team meetings. So I would say, can we look toward the moments that really matter where I am relating to others and where 
privilege is going to show up in those contexts. There's inherently a hierarchy if you are a leader and people report to you, and that creates a power dynamic. How can I challenge that power dynamic when I'm in meetings? Am I going to allow someone else to run the agenda? And I like this idea of the mute button. So it's like a micro shift that you can make. (laughs) I'm going to shut up and and let other people talk rather than taking up so much of the airspace. I love that. So can you apply it in your life to moments that you're relating to your team? And I think team meetings are a great place to potentially start thinking about that because we're in meetings so frequently. (laughs) Is there anything that leaders should just absolutely avoid, right? We talked about getting comfortable with discomfort, but is there, you know, a clear (laughs) line that you want to make sure people are not crossing? No, I'm just kind of tired of people saying, I don't know what to do. So Mm -hmm. that's (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's a really, really interesting landmine because people would not actually define that. They would say a landmine is saying something wrong. And you're saying the landmine is saying, I don't know what to say. (laughs) You have to take the listening and learning to the next step. And I think there is absolutely space and, and you have to continue to learn. You have to continue to apply a growth mindset and do that process of learning and unlearning that Matt has been talking about. Also, whenever you have a problem, in life, whether that's figuring out what the strategy is for the service line, you don't know what you're doing until you start to dig in and try to learn and like do the work, go through the process. And I think that because we've allowed this conversation about race or so many dimensions of identity to be left out of yeah. certain spaces mm-hmm. that we're so uncomfortable and we're not willing to, you're not really doing the work. Like I trust all of us like Matt said, we're all awash in this. All of us do have a perspective. All of us can use our experiences to come toward even small solutions. And that's what I would like to push people to do, to not look outside of themselves all the time for the answers. And, you know, there are so many small things. If you are in a position like I am, to more consciously note how much am I talking here? And does this really need to be said? And does it need to be said by me? And who have I not heard from in this meeting? What other perspectives might there be? But again, there's so much learning and unlearning and conscious engagement with oneself and one's peers and one's surroundings that's required. This is hard work and it's lifelong work. Mm -hmm. And not only do we hear a lot of, I don't know what to do, but there does seem to be this feeling like, are we done yet? Have we have we done oh, yeah. have we done yeah. what we need to do in order to for mm-hmm. people to be satisfied with right. our action on this issue? No, this yeah. is the work. Yeah, this is not a press release. This is not we added one uh-huh. single person to our leadership team. Yeah. This is lifelong work. My landmine is not actually listening. And especially when you don't understand, I think a lot of folks' gut reaction is to say, Well, I would say this of anyone, or I would ask this question of anyone. Why is it wrong in this moment? And you don't need to know why it's wrong. You just need to listen and say, okay, thank you. I understand. And I'm going to act differently next time. It's also really emotionally charged, right? It's going to be hard because when we do mess up, it's not going to simply be when you make a technical error and someone helps you to see, oh, you could completely have done that PowerPoint differently. Let me show you how. Oftentimes it happens when we have accidentally hurt somebody Hmm, based on what we say or do or overlook the capacity that 
human beings and leaders in particular require in order to navigate this kind of complexity, it goes well beyond business skills. Let's just say that. Right. Yeah. I really appreciate the fact that you two were so willing to just kind of have an open and honest conversation with me about this really, really hard topic. I want to get to a moment of practical advice. What is the one thing you want to make sure our listeners take away from this conversation? I think more than anything, what I want healthcare leaders to understand is this is a really important priority, not simply because people feel strongly about it. But if we really step back and recognize the degree to which our inattention to this issue has kept us from being able to truly live out our mission, values we have said matter more than anything. Everything from providing full, equal care to members of our community, to respecting the dignity of every human being, we've got a lot of work to do. And it's work that, frankly, leaders I know they care about, but it's work that we have to kind of keep front and center every single day and not let this moment where it has come into sharp focus pass. We need to keep it on the table, keep talking about it and talk about it in terms of purpose. Talk about it in terms of what matters most here. Why are we doing this? And keep at it because it's so emotionally freighted that people are going to want to run and hide and jump under the table and ignore it. Because we try to deactivate and ignore uncomfortable things. Yeah. We've got to keep it on the table. Yeah. Nishalai? I would just follow up with a question. What sacrifices are you willing to make? Or what are you willing to do differently? Hmm. It's going to be very easy when you start to think about solutions here. Like the aspiration is really bold around dismantling systems of oppression. That is difficult work. And the vision is going to be something that's going to make you uncomfortable. And that might make you that this isn't possible. We don't do things that way here. Hmm. And I'm going to follow up with a question. What sacrifices are you willing to make in service of this purpose as Matt articulated? Because it will require doing that period. Can I simply add to put a finer point on what sacrifices you're willing to make? If you look around at your organization and you see that your senior executive team is pretty homogenous or entirely homogenous, as is often the case, think about the degree to which that is consonant or dissonant with your values, with what you've said matters most. When you think about the question, what sacrifices are we willing to make? Are we willing to do the work to diversify our leadership in a way that ensures that all voices are heard? Hmm. Well, Michelet, Matt, thanks so much for coming back on Radio Advisory. The challenges we've been talking about feel really impossible to tackle, but the truth is we can't actually dismantle racism if we don't see it, if we don't call it out in our lives and in ourselves. This is just the beginning. There is so much deeper work that follows for us and frankly for you. But remember, we are here to help.
All right. All right. Everybody take a deep breath in through the nose, out through the mouth. Then say Peter Piper Peter picked a peck Piper of pickled, pickled peppers. Peck of pickled peppers. The human torch takes a bank loan. Ooh, that was a good one.